This is a special broadcast of Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new Los Angeles. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to fostering greater intellectual and cultural fellowship in our diverse urban landscape. Tonight's program features Michael Barone, senior writer for U.S. News and World Report and co-author of The Almanac of American Politics, discussing life, liberty, and property, how 9-11 changed the American political landscape. Mr. Barone posits that the results of the 2002 midterm elections reveal how September 11th changed American politics. He argues that these changes can be summed up under the headings borrowed from Thomas Jefferson's original words in the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and property. Zocalo is proud to present an evening with Michael Barone. Well, one of the things I try to do in my political writing is to try and put things in some uh, long-distance perspective to try to get a sense of, uh, of where we are in history and how things have changed uh, and how they may be different from the patterns of the past. Or as I used to put it in the 1990s, uh, I like to look beyond Al D'Amato to Al de Tocqueville. And in that spirit, I've entitled the talk, uh, Life, Liberty, and Property. And that's the, one of the phrases that Thomas Jefferson and the writers of the Declaration of Independence were considering including what ended up as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But property was uh, an important idea to the founders. They believed that uh, one of the ways you ensured that people have liberty is that they have property so that they can be independent. Uh, and my thesis basically is that since September 11th, in some cases because of September 11th, in some cases uh, simply as time has gone on, the way that life, the factors of life, liberty, and property have worked in American politics uh, have changed somewhat, and they're different from what uh, we may have been used to in the past. Life, we are a nation who is now under attack, uh, a nation that was united uh, almost entirely in response to that attack, but is now divided on how to respond to the attacks and the situations that we see ourselves in abroad uh, and the dangers we face at home. Liberty. Uh, we're a nation split along cultural lines, and I'll say a little more about this in a moment. Uh, we're not the nation that the political scientists of the post-New Deal era described, a nation uh, in which people disagreed on politics about who got how much uh, when. Uh, we're more a nation that is debating issues of liberty and is debating them and is divided along cultural or moral or religious lines. What kind of issues? Uh, they vary from time to time, but the liberty to have an abortion, or the liberty of choice, as some would say, the liberty to carry a gun, the liberty to marry someone of the same sex, uh, a new issue for presidential politics in 2004. Um, interestingly, uh, most Americans who believe that, uh, who, who uh, favor the liberty to have an abortion, tend to be opposed to the liberty to have a gun. And most people who favor the liberty of having a gun, being able to carry a gun, uh, are against the liberty to have an abortion. Um, do people have different ideas of, of liberty and what they should be? Those ideas are rooted in people's personal uh, moral codes, in the decisions they've made in their personal lives. Uh, they're not something that changes easily, although we have seen changes on uh, gay rights issues in the last 10 years. Uh, but many of them have been moved, I think, by uh, the fact that they, they now know or that they know or they now know they know people who are gay and people whom they like and they've changed their attitudes towards uh, their homosexual fellow citizens. And finally, property. Um, we're a nation 
in which most citizens in the course of their lifetimes accumulate significant amounts of property. Uh, you don't necessarily know that from reading the statistics. Uh, if you read the Federal Reserve reports, you will hear that most Americans have no substantial net worth. Uh, but in fact, uh, by the time people reach age 55 to 65, uh, most Americans in that age group do have a substantial net worth. Uh, people who are 25 years old don't have much in the way of net worth. Uh, I would argue they shouldn't have much in the way of net worth. They don't know how to handle wealth. Uh, you can handle it better if you've accumulated it over the course of a lifetime. Um, but most people, the, the norm now is for people at those peak wealth years uh, to get on the magnitude of 500000 or so dollars in residential real estate and stocks. And as some of you in Los Angeles uh, area know, residential real estate can go considerably higher than that, even in some neighborhoods where one never would have thought um, we're, we're dealing with that. Now, we're dealing with these issues of life, liberty, and property in what has turned out to be a very closely divided nation. I did an essay in the Almanac of American Politics introduction in 2002, written after the 2000 presidential election. And I just took a look at the election results, and I decided that we were a 49% nation, as I entitled the introduction. You read the numbers off the election returns. 1996, Bill Clinton was reelected with 49% of the vote. Some people thought he got a huge landslide. He did have a margin over Bob Dole. It was 49% of the vote. Uh, the Republicans held the House of Representatives. The popular vote was 49% Republican, 48.5% Democratic. 1998, the impeachment year. Republicans held their majority in the House. The popular vote was 49% Republican, 48% Democratic. Uh, 2000, presidential election was 48% to 48%. I was a consultant or working a, as a contributor to Fox News that night uh, and on election day about 12.45 p.m. at Fox News headquarters in New York. We got the first tranche of exit poll results. And I had a two-word response of which I will repeat to you only the first word, which was, oh. And I thought, this is going to be the longest election night ever. Uh, and on the air that night, Britt Hume made the comment that, uh, gee, this election, it, uh, could be late hours in the morning before we know who's won. And I said, Britt, if it comes to one, one seriously contested result in one state, it could be several days before we know who's won. Well, turned out several meant 36 in that case. The presidential vote, 48% to 48%. The, the vote for the House, the Republicans held on 49% to 48%. Uh, so we had three consecutive presidential elections, three consecutive House elections in which neither major party got a majority. That hasn't happened since the 1880s, and there's no one in Washington that's had experience of the 1880s now that Strom Thurmond's gone. The numbers changed a little in 2002. The Republicans in the House elections got 51% of the popular vote, the Democrats 46%. Uh, that was a change that occurred at the time when the nation was still largely united behind George W. Bush on issues on the war on terrorism, in which job rating oops, excuse me, was considerably higher than it is today. The poll results that I see are people who uh, uh, show both nationally and in the states numbers that look very much like the 2000 election results, uh, giving the limitations of statistical limitations of polling. Uh, you can't be sure uh, whether those are presaging an outcome like 2002 or like 2000, or an outcome that's a couple of points more democratic, but they're very similar to that. As I said before, we are split along cultural lines primarily. The demographic factor that most explains voting behavior in these recent elections in this sort of static political climate uh, is not income. Uh, it's not even race. Uh, it's religion. 
The uh, high-income people voted for George W. Bush by a margin of only uh, 54 to 43 percent, which led me to say to Carl Rove, uh, why are you bothering to give them a tax cut if they haven't given any bigger vote for you than that? On the other hand, people who attend religious services weekly or more gave more than 60 percent of their vote for George W. Bush, and the numbers were far higher among uh, heavy church-going uh, evangelical Protestants, uh, somewhat higher among mainstream Protestants. And uh, Jews and non-believers voted about 80 percent uh, for Al Gore. Those who do not, who attend church services less often than weekly or not at all, voted more than 60 percent for Gore. Uh, that really is the dynamic. And as I say, people feel very strongly about these issues. Um, I should mention uh, one group that's uh, that's an exception to that rule, which is black Americans. On average, they tend to be more devout than, than the average American, and yet they're heavily democratic out of a history that I think we're all familiar with. Uh, we have relatively small number of committed votes. Um, that means that uh, the campaigns are concentrating on appealing to their hardcore believers and to get them out to vote uh, on election day. So in that context, uh, we're considering Let's just look at how the issues of life or whether the nation is at risk here. Uh, I think the interesting thing here is that I think to some extent we are seeing these cultural divisions tend to determine people's stand on issues. If you noticed, uh, Condoleezza Rice and, and George W. Bush have been criticized in effect by Democrats who argued that Bush should have the Democrats who argued that Bush should not have taken preemptive action on Iraq seem to be critical of him for not taking preemptive action on al-Qaeda and the Caliban. There's at least a tension, if not a contradiction, uh, in that stand. My own view is that if Bill Clinton had taken military action against Iraq in 1998, and he presented a strong case for so doing, uh, which was supported by the Democratic congressional leadership and so forth, we would have seen many Republicans in Congress and as voters around the country opposing him, as many Republicans did on the Kosovo issue, and Bosnia and Kosovo. And we would have seen almost all Democrats would have supported him. What we've seen instead with George W. Bush uh, taking that action is that uh, the Democratic Party has been split. Both voters and politicians have been split on the issue. Uh, the effect of the primary candidacies and the initial success of Howard Dean has led John Kerry and his, his, his competitors, uh, in most cases, to sound, uh, at least sound more critical of the war issue. Uh, the current news out of Iraq with fighting in Fallujah and uh, Najaf and other places, uh, I think is a momentary at least in for the short term, uh, mildly hurts George W. Bush. It raises the question of whether we're on the road to a successful uh, military enterprise here. Uh, but in the long run, I think John Kerry has uh, a harder position to sustain. He voted uh, for the Iraq War Resolution in October 2002, and I think partly on a calculation, or at least other Democrats were calculating, that he needed to do that to be a viable general election candidate. That's the lesson he may have drawn from his vote against the Gulf War Resolution in 1991 when he didn't run for president the next year. And then he voted for uh, or voted against the $87 billion of aid uh, in the fall of 2003. There's at least, again, a tension between those two issues, if not an absolute contradiction. Uh, it's a tension that reflects the fact that uh, Democratic primary voters uh, wanted him to vote against that $87 billion as he was competing against um, 
Howard Dean. So, and it's summed up, he made a statement on, to a friendly campaign crowd on March 16th. He said, quote, I did actually vote for the $87 billion before I voted against it, unquote. I think that's, uh, that's a difficult position to sustain. Uh, the Kerry argument is, look, I do nuance on foreign policy. These issues are complex. Uh, you have to take all things into account. You need to protect our allies. And he goes on to argue, as he has a couple of times, that George W. Bush is too stubborn. He persists in policies when events or other actors should be indicating to him that he ought to change his course. Bush will be running on the idea of staying the course, uh, that we can't be safe without really setting an example of a different kind of governance, a different kind of polity uh, in the Middle East, and that we have to, uh, America should not cut and run against these thugs. Uh, there's a large element of thought in the political analysis business that American voters won't stand any significant amount of military casualties. Uh, I think that view is wrong. Lawrence Kaplan had some interesting uh, articles of the New Republic. Uh, I think he had an article in the Wall Street Journal on this, looking at historical examples. Uh, what the American people are concerned about, I think, is not so much that no Americans get killed. They're concerned that we be fighting in a good and successful war effort. And I think uh, President Bush has made a number of statements there uh, at various times and on some solemn occasions when I think he's made a good case for that. I think he needs to make more such statements and to remind people. Uh, but history tells us that high casualties do not necessarily mean the defeat of a president. Two of the three highest casualty years uh, in American history, 1864 and 1944, presidents were reelected. We have had some 600 Americans killed in Iraq in the last 13 months. There will undoubtedly be more. But this is a casualty level that actually historically is similar to that. It's, it's of a magnitude much closer to that, the casualty rate you get out of training accidents uh, and peacetime military service, than it is to the level of, uh, of military casualties that you get in uh, a conflict like Vietnam or like Korea, uh, much less World War II. Uh, in D-Day, the first 18 hours of D-Day, after the Americans hit the beach, four Americans died every minute. President Roosevelt was reelected. Uh, let me turn now to some of the, what I call the liberty issues, and I guess a couple issues are new here. We've heard, um, going out in the Democratic primary trail this year, interestingly, I heard less talk about abortion or choice and gun control than I've heard last time. I'm not, I'm not quite sure why. I still have to write an article explaining that because I haven't figured it out. We've heard more about this uh, same-sex marriage issue, which I think is an issue both major party candidates would like to see go away. Uh, here, opinion is about two to one in favor of the idea that marriage should continue to be defined as the union of one man and one woman, not the union of one human being and another human being, uh, which is the case writers like Andrew Sullivan and Jonathan Rauch have made arguments for. Uh, voters are more closely split on the question of whether the Constitution should be amended. They understand that amending the Constitution is an unusual act. I think some are uncomfortable with the idea of putting this subject into the text of the Constitution. I think more would be in favor of a constitutional amendment. Uh, I don't think that there's the votes in the Congress for a constitutional amendment to ban same-sex marriage. I think there may be votes in the Congress and in the state legislatures for an amendment which would bar state courts from redefining marriage but would let each state make its own decision and that decision would prevail within that state if the state wanted it so to do uh, through the legislature or the voters. 
Again, John Kerry has a little more trouble on this because he's got a constituency, a party that is split on this issue, uh, whereas George W. Bush has a party in which the large majority uh, are on his side. The other cultural issue that may come up this year is the issue of immigration. As you know, George W. Bush proposed a a sort of guest worker program that would involve some legalization of the several million illegal immigrants that are in the United States. Now, the fact is, I, th I think it's a serious effort to come up with uh, some kind of a solution to something that is a genuine problem. I think other, some Democrats, like uh, Los Angeles Congressman Howard Berman, have made very constructive efforts, Democratic congressmen, to deal with the immigration issue. There is a problem here. The, the immigration law is not working in sync with the labor market. Uh, and so we're having results like people, including people dying um, out in the Arizona desert when they're trying to get across the border. I don't see this as being a partisan issue. I do see it as one on which Bush, one of several issues on which Bush is going to be going after Latino voters. And I said earlier that voters in the United States are mostly pretty much, they've pretty much enlisted in one of the two armies that are fighting the culture wars in America today. Most of you have enlisted in one or the other of those armies, and uh, I suppose I have myself. Latinos are less likely to have done so uh, for a variety of reasons, one of which is that they haven't been voting in this country very long uh, in most cases. And it's a movable vote. Example, 1998, Gray Davis went running for governor of California, won 78% of the Latino vote. Uh, in 2003, the recall election, no on recall, which is to say voting for Davis, 53% of Latinos voted for him. That was a decline of 25%. Davis's uh, percentage among voters as a whole only went down 11%. So voters are voters that are movable. George W. Bush is, is advertising on Spanish language broadcasting uh, as we speak. I think there's a Latino Democratic group that's now doing some answers. He will bring up, I predict, the uh, Senate Democrats' rejection of the judgeship, opposition to the judgeship of Miguel Estrada, which the Senate Democratic staffer said literally was because he was Hispanic. They didn't want to see him on the court. I think that's something that may cost them some votes. It, it's unlikely that Bush will win a majority of Hispanics uh, or Latinos, but I think that he has the potential to do better than he did last time. Uh, and remember that Latinos vote differently in different states, depending on some extent on where they're from and on the politics and the political situation in the state they're in. Uh, so you have this result. If no Latinos had voted anywhere nationally in 2000, George W. Bush would have won a majority of the popular vote, or at least a plurality of the popular vote. But if no Latinos had voted only in the state of Florida, Al Gore would be president. So, because Bush won the Latino vote in Florida. So it's different in different states. Uh, it's one exception to the idea that, uh, th that we've got this uh, solidly committed electorate. They're less solidly committed. Finally, let me turn to issues of property. And I phrase the economic issue as property because you know, I don't think that the economic issues work as they did in the eras described by the post-New Deal political scientists. They were describing a world in which rich people almost all voted for uh, uh, Republicans and poor people voted for Democrats. Well, today you're living in a California where Beverly Hills voted 70% for Al Gore and Bakersfield voted 70% for George W. Bush. Beverly Hills is richer than Bakersfield, by the way. So voting is not necessarily along economic lines, although there are some economic efforts. Uh, Democrats have been talking about job losses this year. Uh, I think that was undermined somewhat by the report uh, that came out April 2nd of the, uh, 
I guess they wouldn't have believed it if it was April 1st, came out April 2nd, uh, showing a gain of 308,000 jobs in, in March. That was the result of the Bureau of Labor Statistics Employer Survey. The Bureau of Labor Statistics Population Survey has showed a gain of 1.9 million jobs since no, the, the recession officially ended in November 2001. There has been a continuing discrepancy between these. I think the jobs issue, nonetheless, has uh, something of a potential uh, to help the Democrats. Some of the industrial states where people are used to arguments about uh, manufacturing jobs leaving for Mexico or so forth are also some of the states that are most seriously contested. They're among the 17 states that were decided within five points in the 2000 election, and those 17 states are where we're going to see most of the political advertising. Uh, so those issues play some importance in Ohio and West Virginia, which Bush carried, and Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, which Al Gore carried. You know, the small things can affect an election in a very closely divided situation. But I think there's another economic uh, way of looking at the election, and that is how people are doing on their long-term project, lifetime project, of accumulating wealth. Uh, we now have an investor majority in the electorates. Most voters own stocks, bonds, or financial instruments. Some of them don't own very much, uh, but very many do. People have their 401k accounts. They keep up with some of these issues. Uh, investors typically and in every ethnic group tend to vote somewhat more Republican than non-investors. Uh, and so the move towards more investors is a mild boost for the Republicans in the, in the long run demographically. Also in this year, uh, what we found is that people have done pretty well on wealth issues. This is considerably different from 1992 when George Bush's father was running for re-election. In that year, most voters, only about 20% of voters owned stock, and we had huge drops in housing prices. The biggest drops in housing prices were in southern, here in Southern California and in the primary state of New Hampshire. Uh, if you look at how far Bush's, uh, senior Bush's percentage dropped between 1988 and 92, the biggest drops were in guess where? Southern California and New Hampshire. Uh, that's when I started looking. When I looked at those numbers, I started looking at wealth issues. Uh, people have done pretty well on wealth, actually, in the last four years. Uh, house prices have stayed up. They have not crashed and, in fact, have been buoyant in many areas of the country. Personal financial wealth is now at an all-time high. Uh, some people you know, say, well, the stock market's not at its all-time peak. And the answer is, that's right. But everybody didn't buy all their stocks in March 2000. And I think Bush is going to be talking more in the campaign, his people have so indicated to me, about an ownership, what he calls an ownership society, how government programs can encourage people in a lifetime project of accumulating wealth. It will include his proposal, which he made in 2000, for personal retirement accounts and Social Security. Uh, it includes the health savings account, some form of which was included in the Medicare prescription drug bill, and other tax-free savings. However, Bush has not really made this argument in any great extent yet. The case is unfamiliar to most voters. It is unfamiliar to most political reporters, few of whom are particularly favorable to Bush in their own personal beliefs. At the same time, Kerry's thing about the jobs disappearing to, to Mexico and so forth is a more familiar theme. If you hum a few bars, most people know the tune. Uh, we haven't elected a protectionist candidate for president since 1928. The more protectionist candidate, uh, Kerry hopes that he can turn that around. I'm not sure that that issue phrased that way will work for him. Uh, but the jobs issue is a potential if Bush doesn't respond by making articulately a case uh, for what is, in fact, uh, a rather significant 
is something that I think is in line with the basic characteristics of how the country has been changing. Finally, as I said before, enthusiasm and turnout matters. The Bush campaign is devoting a lot of its time and money, in this, at least in the 17 target states, I don't know if California is included, I don't think it is at the present, to turning out, getting out the vote, personal campaigning, uh, people going door to door talking to their neighbors. Uh, Democrats through the unions uh, and through the Democratic Party, I think, are going to be trying to do the same thing. They're both operating on the theory that the number of undecided, percentage of undecided voters is a whole lot less than it used to be 15, 20 years ago, and your job is to get your people out. We don't know what the balance of enthusiasm is going to be on Election Day. In 2002, I think the balance of enthusiasm favored Bush and the Republicans, and as a result, we saw them do slightly better than they had in the preceding three congressional elections. In, in this campaign, uh, we heard talk during the primary that uh, Democrats were enthused and their high turnout, actually not. Uh, they did have a record high turnout in New Hampshire. Uh, they had a turnout that matched record turnouts in Wisconsin primary and Iowa caucuses. In other races, their primary turnout generally was low lower than any other year since the primaries became a big thing in 1972, uh, except for 96 when Bill Clinton was renominated unopposed, and 2000 when Al Gore cinched the nomination after the New Hampshire uh, primary. So that's the picture today. Closely divided nation. Uh, the issues of life, liberty, and property have changed and transformed, but the close divisions in the electorate remain along the same lines. We're not getting many desertions or mutinies in the uh, two armies in the culture war. Uh, let me just conclude uh, by making a shameless book plug here. My 2001 book, The New Americans, How the Melting Pot Can Work Again, uh, the thesis of that book was that the minority groups of uh, today closely resemble the immigrant groups of uh, immigrant groups of 100 years ago. Blacks resemble Irish, Latinos resemble Italians, Asians resemble Jews. 100 years ago, many people said those people can't be assimilated. They can't become real Americans. They're they're going to change the country in a deleterious way. Today, we know those people were wrong. And today we're hearing some other people. We're hearing some people on the left, we're hearing some people on the right, or wherever you want to locate Pat Buchanan most recently, uh, are saying the same things uh, about minorities and immigrants today. And it's my argument that if we learn intelligently from the lessons of 100 years ago, because they did some things better 100 years ago than we did today, and we learn intelligently from the areas where we're doing better today than we did 100 years ago, uh, America can work again. Uh, this new book, which is coming out in May, is called Hard America, Soft America. Uh, it's another sort of look at our recent history. It's less political. Uh, hard America I define as that part of American life where you have competition and accountability. Soft America is where you don't. So hard America includes, among many other things, uh, the high-tech private sector. Soft America includes, among many other things, high school. Uh, not all of the public sector is soft. Not all, or not all of the private sector is hard. You know, in, in our own personal life, I think we mostly recognize that hardness, competition, and accountability results in more production, more products, services, and way of and public services as well. Uh, at the same time, uh, most of us would like a soft niche tenure, the uh, the idea that we can't be fired, that everything is guaranteed for us. Naturally, our incentives are in that direction. As Adam Smith pointed out, you can't get a gathering of businessmen together without trying to fix prices, which is a way. Of making themselves immune to competition. Uh, and so this looks at how hardness and softness has increased and decreased in crime, in welfare, in education, in the military, uh, in the corporate private sector, uh, and in different aspects of government. 
So with that, let me conclude. Thank you very much. That was author Michael Barone, senior writer for U.S. News and World Report and co-author of The Almanac of American Politics. Join us next month when Zocalo presents John Philip Santos, producer, journalist, and author of Places Left Unfinished at the Time of Creation. Mr. Santos will discuss the destiny of identity in an era of globalization. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to fostering greater intellectual and cultural fellowship in our diverse urban landscape. The Zocalo Public Lecture Series brings together Angelinos from across racial and partisan lines and is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC, the Los Angeles Times, Latino Weekly, and the Shepherd Broad Foundation. Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., is made possible by the American Jewish Committee and the Library Foundation of Los Angeles. For more information, please visit our website, zocalola.org.